Hello, students. My name is Mike Estefan, and I thank you for joining me today on this month's episode of the EM Clerkship Podcast. Buckle up, friends, because this month we're going to be talking about atrial fibrillation. Before we begin, I would like to share a quick word from our sponsors from the folks over at Pearson Rabbits Insurance. I cannot stress how important it is for you to get disability insurance when you are a resident. As a resident, you will see rates lower than at any point in your career. Stephanie Pearson and her team at Pearson Rabbits have years of experience helping physicians like you and I obtain disability insurance. One of the reasons that Stephanie started her company was because she was sick and tired of being misled by other predatory insurance companies. Don't wait until it's too late. Please check out Pearson Rabbits at www.pearsonrabbits.com and schedule a consultation appointment today. Now, back to our episode. So, atrial fibrillation in the ED can actually get kind of complex. It's one of my favorite topics, and so I apologize in advance if I go into a little too much detail, but I'm super excited to give this talk. Be sure to give it a second listen if you need to, to let this information sit and absorb. I'm going to start with a quick overview covering the basics, and then we will deep dive. So let's begin. AFib is defined as an irregularly irregular rhythm without P waves on EKG, and it's usually narrow complex, but in some weird situations, it can become wide complex. People with AFib most often present with symptoms directly due to the AFib itself, such as chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations, lightheadedness, dizziness, etc. Less often, patients will present with symptoms due to an embolic event caused by the AFib. Some examples of this include acute mesenteric ischemia, acute limb ischemia, and stroke. Usually, people are symptomatic from AFib due to the high ventricular rates that can be associated with AFib. AFib with rapid ventricular rate, or RVR for short, is defined by a heart rate greater than 110. AFib is usually caused by a combination of chronic health problems such as hypertension, old age, tobacco use, lung disease, etc. However, AFib can also be caused, or worsened if pre-existing, by acute pathology such as pulmonary embolism, sepsis, thyrotoxicosis, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, etc. Now, there are two main reasons why AFib is bad. First of all, it reduces stroke volume and thus reduces cardiac output as the atria aren't able to contract in order to fill the ventricles as much as usual. The faster the heart rate, the more that this effect is pronounced. And secondly, due to stagnation of blood in the left atria, a thrombus can form and eventually embolize to the systemic circulation causing strokes and other acute arterial occlusions. And that's the overview. You guys probably knew most of that already. Now, let's move on to the deep dive. The first question I always ask myself whenever I see a patient with AFib RVR is, is this primary AFib or is this secondary AFib? Primary AFib means that the patient's symptoms are due to uncontrolled AFib itself and not due to a specific underlying cause. Think of the patient who presents with sudden onset palpitations and lightheadedness. Secondary AFib, on the other hand, refers to AFib that is being driven by an underlying process. This distinction is very important, everyone, because the treatment of primary AFib is so different than the treatment of secondary AFib. Let me give you an example. 
A patient is sent to the ED from their nursing home due to AFib with ventricular rates in the 130s to 140s. On arrival, you find that the patient is hypotensive, but also happens to have a fever of 104. This should make you pause. Is this patient hypotensive because the rapid AFib is causing a decrease in cardiac output? Or is this patient hypotensive because of an underlying process such as septic shock and the tachycardia is simply the body's compensatory response to this state of hypoperfusion? If this patient is hypotensive because the rapid AFib itself is not allowing for adequate filling time and thus leading to a drop in cardiac output, then this would be considered primary AFib. The treatment for primary AFib is to treat the AFib itself, either by rate control or by rhythm control. We will discuss in depth how to treat primary AFib a bit later in this episode. On the other hand, if the tachycardia is a compensatory response to the hypoperfusion from septic shock, then this would be considered secondary AFib. In this case, you can think of the AFib just like a sinus tachycardia. It is the body's way of compensating for hypoperfusion by trying to increase cardiac output, and the AFib here is the red herring. In circumstances like this, it is important to look at prior EKGs because you can figure out if the patient lives in AFib or if this is new onset AFib. If the patient lives in AFib, then there's a higher chance that this is simply the patient's version of sinus tachycardia and thus is secondary AFib. Don't let this pigeonhole you, because certainly in cases such as thyrotoxicosis, the patient can present with new onset AFib, but this would still be considered secondary AFib driven by the thyrotoxicosis. The treatment for secondary AFib is to treat the underlying cause and not to treat the rate or rhythm. You can imagine that giving beta blockers to a patient in septic shock probably isn't too helpful. And so determining primary versus secondary AFib is super important. Most patients that present to the emergency room with AFib are stable and are not hypotensive. Most patients that come in with AFib are coming in because they're having palpitations or chest pain and their symptoms are due to the AFib. Therefore, treating the AFib in most cases, as we should with primary AFib, is more often than not the correct answer. As these patients are hemodynamically stable and are presenting because of symptoms related to the AFib. However, whenever you see somebody who is unstable with AFib, you need to consider secondary AFib before treating the rate or the rhythm. However, whenever you see somebody who is unstable and presenting with AFib, you need to consider secondary underlying causes that is driving the AFib. Does that make sense? So primary AFib is patients who present with symptoms due to the AFib itself, like chest pain, palpitations, etc. Or with patients who are unstable, but the instability is due to the AFib itself. The treatment for primary AFib, again, is addressing the rate or the rhythm itself. And we will discuss that in a second. And with secondary AFib, we often see fast rates, but the AFib with RVR is actually the red herring, and there's some kind of underlying process driving that AFib, such as thyrotoxicosis, sepsis, etc. In these cases, the treatment is to treat the underlying cause. And so that, I think, is the most difficult concept to grasp when talking about AFib. Remember, a patient is more than just a number. We treat the patient and not the number. All right, 
I think I've beaten this dead horse enough. Let's move on. For the rest of this episode, we will be talking about the treatment of primary AFib. Once you have decided that the patient has primary AFib and needs rate or rhythm control, you must ask yourself another question. Is this patient stable or unstable? Here, we define unstable as the presence of hypotension, altered mental status, or pulmonary edema, and pretty much everyone else I personally consider stable. For patients in primary AFib who are unstable, the first-line treatment is synchronized cardioversion. Now, sometimes you need a few attempts, but if the patient is chronically in AFib, then this is unlikely to work. These cases get a little bit dicey because the usual medications that we use to rate control also tend to be negative inotropes, so they reduce cardiac output and further can drop the patient's blood pressure. Now, there are two drugs in this circumstance that actually work quite well. The first is digoxin, which is a positive inotrope, so it increases cardiac contractility and actually helps the blood pressure. And the second is amiodarone, which is very weakly a negative inotrope. So, unstable primary AFib, we cardiovert. And if that's not successful, the answer is either digoxin or amiodarone in the ED. Now, if the patient is presenting with symptoms due to their AFib and they are stable, so stable primary AFib, then we have some more digging to do. We need to find out exactly when their symptoms started. This is important because it helps us assess risk of stroke. If you can be sure that the patient's symptoms have been ongoing for less than 48 hours, you may proceed with cardioversion, as the risk of stroke is low. However, if symptoms have been ongoing for more than 48 hours, even if intermittent, or if symptoms have been going for an unknown duration, you absolutely should not cardiovert them. Now, the thought process behind this is that it is very unlikely for an atrial thrombus to form within the first 48 hours of being in AFib, and thus the risk of dislodging the clot after cardioversion causing a stroke is very low. For these patients that are not candidates for cardioversion, the name of the game is rate control. The goal is to reduce the ventricular rate below 110, as recommended by the American College of Cardiology. There are two classes of drugs that we typically use to accomplish this, at least two first-line drugs, calcium channel blockers, such as diltiazem, and beta blockers, such as metoprolol or esmolol. Now, the evidence doesn't really show that one is better than the other. However, there are some certain circumstances where I will choose one medication over the other. Personally, I avoid beta blockers in those with asthma or COPD, as they are frequently treated with beta agonists, and I don't want to be putting them on a beta blocker. Otherwise, I personally use diltiazem, but again, this is very hospital-centric, what you choose to use, and um, a lot of it has to do with what the cardiologists like to use at your hospital. If the calcium channel blocker or the beta blocker does not adequately rate control the patient, then the next line are the drugs like amiodarone or digoxin. Typically, I'll use amiodarone as my second-line therapy here. Okay, just to review again. If the patient is in stable AFib, the next thing you do is figure out how long they've been having symptoms. If they've been having symptoms for less than 48 hours, you can go ahead and proceed with cardioversion as the risk of immediate stroke is very low. 
However, if they have been having symptoms for more than 48 hours or for an unknown duration, the risk of stroke is too high and we must proceed with rate control. First-line agents for rate control are calcium channel blockers or beta blockers. And lastly, we should talk about anticoagulation in AFib. The reason we anticoagulate in AFib is to reduce the risk of stroke. There is one tool that we use to risk stratify patients' risk of stroke after being diagnosed with AFib. That tool is called CHADS 2 VASC score. And personally, I use the calculator at MD Calc to figure this out, although it's not that complex and after doing it a few times, you'll probably remember all the criteria. But essentially, any patient that you diagnose with AFib, you should be calculating a CHADS 2 VASC score. Pretty much everybody with a score of 2 or higher gets started on anticoagulation. A score of 1 means either aspirin or anticoagulation, depending on other risk factors. And a score of 0 typically means anticoagulation is not necessary. Now, I want to preface all that by saying that you must balance the risk of bleeding with the risk of stroke. There is another scoring calculator that we use to assess the risk of bleeding, and that is called the HasBled score. Anyone who has a high enough CHADS2 VAS score that I'm planning on starting anticoagulation on, I also calculate this HasBled score. And if their HasBled score is 3 or higher, then I'm usually roping in cardiology with this discussion on whether or not to start anticoagulation. Now, the choice of anticoagulation can get very nuanced, and I'm not really going to dive too deep in here. The spark notes of it are that patients who are at very high risk of stroke, meaning patients with what we call valvular AFib, and patients with numerous stroke risk factors typically get put on warfarin, whereas patients with non-valvular AFib and a moderate risk of stroke get put on novel oral anticoagulation. Okay, so let's rehash everything that we talked about today. Your first question is always, is this primary AFib or is this secondary AFib? Primary AFib includes patients who present who are stable and presenting with signs and symptoms due to the AFib itself, meaning chest pain, palpitations, lightheadedness, etc. This is the most common presentation of AFib that you will see in the ED. Patients can also present with hemodynamic instability due to primary AFib. However, this is much rarer. In these circumstances, the hypotension is driven by the AFib and not an underlying process. Usually these cases have high ventricular rates greater than 150, and like I said, are much rarer to see in the ED. Secondary AFib is when the atrial fibrillation is being driven by an underlying process. For example, thyrotoxicosis, pulmonary embolism, or sepsis. If the patient is presenting with hemodynamic instability, you better be sure that you are considering all secondary causes driving this hemodynamic instability before treating the AFib as primary AFib. The treatment of primary AFib is to address either the rate or the rhythm, and the treatment of secondary AFib is to treat the underlying cause. Now, once you've determined that the patient's AFib is primary AFib, you must ask yourself, is this patient stable or unstable? If the patient is unstable, then the treatment is cardioversion, no matter how long the patient has been having symptoms for. 
If cardioversion is unsuccessful after multiple attempts, you can consider rate control agents that do not suppress cardiac contractility significantly, such as digoxin or amiodarone. If the patient is stable, then we have to figure out how long the patient has been having their symptoms. Stable patients who have been having symptoms for less than 48 hours can also be safely cardioverted in the ED. On the other hand, patients who have been having symptoms for more than 48 hours or for an unknown duration cannot be safely cardioverted in the ED, and the name of the game is rate control. First-line therapy here is either a calcium channel blocker, such as diltiazem or verapamil, or a beta blocker, such as metoprolol or esmolol. If treatment with a first-line agent is unsuccessful, you can add on a second-line agent, such as amiodarone or digoxin. And finally, all patients who come to the ED with AFib need to have an assessment of their risk of stroke and their risk of bleeding on anticoagulation. To do this, you calculate a CHADS2-VASC score to assess risk of stroke, and you also calculate a HASBLED score to determine risk of major bleeding. In general, we start anticoagulation on anybody with a CHADS2-VASC score of 2 or higher, and sometimes even if they have a score of 1. Regardless of their CHADS2-VASC score, if they have a high risk of bleeding, as evident by their HASBLED score, that I'm always a little hesitant to start anticoagulation and I will usually discuss with the patient's cardiologist. And that's all I've got for you guys today. Thanks for tuning in. If you guys have any questions about the content in this episode or any questions about residency or anything like that, feel free to shoot me an email. My email is mike at emclerkship.com. Until next month, keep working hard, keep studying, and be sure to enjoy your shift.